You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We hope you've been enjoying the Greater Than Expected series. Today, Pastor Tom brought us the next message leading up to Easter, titled, King of Kings. Let's check it out. Well, good morning, Word of Life. It is wonderful to be able to come and be with you today. I want to make sure that everyone is aware we are going to be having communion um, together before service is done today. So if you don't currently have your communion elements, you can go ahead and see one of the ushers. They'll be happy to get that figured out with you. And if you're watching at home, glad you're able to come and be a part of service with us. So if you need to go grab something to represent bread and juice, please do so. We, uh, we want to be able to do this together with everybody. But as already been said today, it is Palm Sunday, which means next week is Easter. Come on, somebody. So I'm looking forward to Easter service. It's always a great atmosphere here at church. There's lots, uh, lots of new people that we get a chance to meet uh, on Easter. Uh, if you've been around the past couple of weeks, you'll know that we had some invitation cards made up that you can give to people. Um, we have um, some that are left over. I know a bunch have already gone out. But I can tell you, after today, we do not need those cards. So grab as many as you can fit in your car and invite anybody, somebody, someone at work, a neighbor, put it under the windscreen wiper of someone at Wegmans, whatever. Do something to extend an invitation because Easter is a time where people will come to church if they are invited. So if you've got people on your mind, if there's people that you would love to see come be a part of the church, next weekend is possibly the easiest weekend of the year for you to invite somebody to come and be a part of church with us next weekend. So looking forward to that. But here we are. We are um, in the middle, or I should say kind of towards the tail end. Next week will be the last in the series that we've been on called Greater Than Expected. And we've really spent time looking at the person of Jesus and the way that he ministered and as he walked the earth, as he was uh, doing his earthly ministry, what that looked like, what was involved, all the great things that happened. And it's been a great series to dive into, and I've enjoyed it thoroughly. We started off week one talking about Jesus the Messiah. And then we looked at Jesus the healer, and that was a great time together. I was uh, delighted to be a part of that with you. And then Megan shared a message the next week on Jesus the Restorer. And then we looked at Jesus the teacher, and last week we had Pastor Lisa come up and she talked about Jesus, a friend better than any other friend. Friend greater than expected. And this week we're looking at Jesus, the King of Kings. Greater than expected, the King of Kings. And today the title King of Kings is widely understood and accepted and known to be talking about Jesus. But in biblical times there's historical evidence that the Babylonians, the Parthians, and the Persian rulers, they would all describe themselves this way of being the King of Kings. But the Jewish people in the time of Jesus, they were versed in the Old Testament and they knew that this designation, the King of Kings, was for God alone. God is referred to as Lord of Lords in Deuteronomy in the book of Psalms. After Daniel correctly interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar declares, truly your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings. But after the resurrection, after that first Easter Sunday, we see this title used to talk about Jesus. Paul describes Jesus this way as the King of Kings in 1 Timothy. We also see this a few times in the book of Revelation, this one from Revelation 19:16. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. King of kings means that to begin to comprehend Jesus' majesty, we look at earthly kings. We see what earthly kings are like, what qualities they have, the good things that we can see in leadership and people in power. And then we remind ourselves that Jesus is far greater than any of those. If one person claps, we all have to. This title positions Jesus as being above earthly kings and leaders and anyone in power. 
And that's something that we can still understand 2,000 years later as we think about powerful people. I grew up in the UK. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my voice gives it away. But growing up in the UK, I had a friend of mine that was invited to Buckingham Palace to have dinner with the Queen. And so when you go and have dinner with the Queen, and this was not an intimate, you know, just the two of them. This was a big 150-person meal that was happening, a big banquet that was happening. And so my friend was there, and um, let's just say that he was towards the back in the cheap seats. And so he was sat there, and if you know anything about the etiquette of the royal family, the queen gets served last and eats first. So nobody eats until the queen eats, and her plate gets put in front of her last. And so my buddy sat towards the back, and they wait on him and bring him his food, and it is easily the best meal he's ever going to eat in his life. I mean, it was cooked in a palace. I mean, come on, somebody. And this meal is put in front of him, and then he has to wait and wait and wait because there's 150 other people that need their dinner. And then nobody's eating a thing until Her Majesty tucks in. So he's waiting and waiting, and what should be the most delicious meal he's ever had in his life is stone-cold gross mush. But even still, anywhere in the world, people in power, whether it's royalty, whether it's political leaders, oftentimes massive houses, security detail, expensive clothing, lots of people stood around just waiting to meet every request of whoever it is, this person in power. But Jesus' earthly ministry didn't look like that. In Matthew 8:20, but Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. Luke also tells us that Jesus and his disciples were financially supported by gifts and donations. When Jesus died, his family didn't provide a place for burial, but he had to be laid in a borrowed tomb. And Jesus uses this position to be a role model for us. In Matthew 20, but Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers, the kings, the people in leadership, the people in power, the people with authority, the rulers in this world lorded over people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must first be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man, even me, even the Son of God, even Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. The King of Kings redefines strength and victory. The King of Kings redefines strength and victory. Jesus' earthly ministry would culminate in a final week in Jerusalem that led up to his crucifixion. And Jesus' reputation and the stories of the miracles he performed went before him, particularly the raising Lazarus from the dead. And it meant the crowd had gathered to welcome him into this Jerusalem capital city. And when we looked at Jesus the Messiah a number of weeks ago, we considered that the Jewish people were living on the edge of their seats waiting for the Messiah, the Deliverer, to come. And now they're hearing stories about a man from Galilee whose teaching was unlike anything they'd ever heard before, and he's performing miracles like they'd never heard of. So it's not surprising that a crowd had gathered on that first Palm Sunday. And we're going to read this in John 12, starting verse 9. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival... They flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. The next day, the news of Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. 
They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at that time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. And this passage is known as the triumphal entry. It's recorded in all four of the Gospels, all four of the books of the Bibles that record the earthly life of Jesus. And it's remembered every year on this Sunday as Palm Sunday. And it marks one week before Easter. And the crowd at the time is full of hope and anticipation that Jesus is the Messiah. But their praise and adoration for Jesus, it comes as an interesting point. They've heard the stories of Jesus' power. Jesus has earned a reputation of being someone that is anointed by God. The crowd has got valid reasons for believing Jesus is indeed the King and the Messiah. So they're ready for him to win an enormous victory. They've heard this man is special. There's something about him. This is not typical. And they are now ready for this anointed one of God to perform an incredible victory. But as we'll see, the King of Kings redefines strength and victory. And we find that it is greater than what was expected. The moment we just read about when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and is hailed by the crowd as the king. Immediately before that, Jesus had been in Bethany, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem. He was in Bethany because while he was ministering in a different town, Jesus got a message from Lazarus' sisters that he was sick. And as they were traveling to Bethany, Jesus told the disciples that Lazarus had died. And this is the chapter before the triumphal entry, but I want to read the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. John 11, verse 17, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village, the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep, so they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? 
Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here, so they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Now, often when we think about the story of Lazarus and many sermons that I certainly have heard in my time about Lazarus being raised back to life, we start placing ourselves in the story. And we start thinking that the story is about dead things coming to life. And we start interpreting it to mean that this is about God calling dead dreams back to life. And this is about me achieving things that I didn't think were possible because look, God raised Lazarus from the dead. But the truth is this story, the hero of this story is Jesus. This is not an illustration about how God is able to bring alive dead things in my life, though that may be true. The point of this story is look how amazing Jesus is. A man was dead and then he wasn't. This is a unique power that Jesus had that none of us can claim we have power to. None of us have this power. This is unique to Jesus. In John's gospel, the miracles or the signs, they're written very carefully. If you do a a study of John's gospel, it's a fascinating book to study. But there are different signs and miracles that are throughout the book that help build this understanding of who Jesus is. And in John's gospel, if you read the other gospels, there's different things you can read. But in John's gospel, there are seven miracles or seven signs that we see. The first one was Jesus turned water into wine. Then we see that he healed the royal official's son. Then he healed a paralytic at the pool next to Bethesda. Then he fed over 5,000 with fish and loaves. Then he walked on water. Then he healed a man that was born blind. And then finally, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, if we were to read this, and I know I rattled off that list, I give you my word, no one's going to get quizzed on that later. But in that list of miracles, what you might notice is that in human terms, they get progressively harder. But I don't know about you, but it's equally as impossible for me to turn water into wine as it is for me to raise somebody from the dead. In human ability, they're equally impossible. It looks like they're getting progressively harder, but really it's just different shades of impossible. And yet what we see from Jesus is that it was just as straightforward, just as easy an effort to change water into wine, to heal a blind man, to raise a paralytic, as it was for him to raise Lazarus from the dead. This is a story very carefully told by John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded by John, that we can see that there is something about Jesus. There is a power that is unmatched by any other human beings. It's not like different degrees of difficult. If we go to the gym, there might be a bunch of weights that you're able to do. You might be able to do the little guys. And then if you're really strong, you might be able to do the big ones. And if you like Mike Cheers, you can do the really big ones. I was expecting a bigger laugh than that, because that's ridiculous. Mike's real weak. But (laughs) there are different degrees of difficult. In your workplace, there are some tasks and responsibilities and projects that are harder than others, more difficult than others, more demanding than others. At a sports events, there are some opponents that are tougher than others. In the Rocky movies, every movie, the opponent gets tougher as you go down the series. That's not what we're talking about. 
This is not different degrees of difficult. This is simply highlighting what is impossible for you and I. And what looks even more impossible than the last miracle Jesus did, he is able to do it with a word he called Lazarus out of the tomb. This is a story that helps us understand just how powerful Jesus is. This is not about degrees of difficult for Jesus. This is that he is able to do the impossible. And in light of this, it's not surprising the word had spread. Word had spread, and we see in John 12, back to the verses about the triumphal entry. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him, and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. And then down to verse 17. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they had heard about this miraculous sign. This moment, the triumphal entry is connected, is interwoven to the raising of Lazarus. Jesus' reputation had caused a crowd to come and gather and recognize this man that was coming into Jerusalem, and they treated him like a king. It's obviously on the minds of people. It appears that this idea of this, this question of, can Jesus raise someone from the dead? Did this really happen? Is this really what's going on? Is this the man? This is clearly on people's minds as they give this grand display fit for a king. This kind of greeting he received, it was typical of kings returning home after a victorious battle. And we can see the atmosphere was heightened and full of expectancy. Back to 12, verse 12. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Now, a few weeks ago, when we talked about Jesus the Messiah, we briefly looked at the origins of Hanukkah and the Maccabean revolt that happened around 200 years before Jesus. And at that time, around the Maccabean revolt, around the time that Hanukkah was instituted, the palm leaves became a symbol of patriotic pride, and they were first waved as a part of celebrating the Maccabean victory and the newfound freedom, including the rededication of the temple. This is an upbeat celebration of people ready for a victory, belief that the promises of God are being fulfilled. Now let's take a look at what the crowd shouted in response as Jesus rode in. They cried out, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Now this isn't just any old something that they're shouting. They're declaring something that's taken from one of the Psalms in the Old Testament. You can read this in Psalm 118, verse 26. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, what's a good Bible study, if you're ever interested, if, if there's ever a line taken from the Old Testament that's used in the New Testament, it's also helpful to remember that this often points to the whole chapter or the whole passage from the Old Testament. So they will see one line written there, but you also know that the people saying this one line have got the larger passage on their minds as they're saying this. And so from this Psalm, Psalm 118, there's a few other verses that come to mind as I went through this that I believe fit what the people were declaring. They're declaring the one of the Lord is coming. He's coming in the name of the Lord. What's also loaded in Psalm 118 is verse 5. In my distress, I prayed to the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. Verse 13, my enemies did their best to kill me, but the Lord rescued me. Verse 17, I will not die. Instead, I will live to tell what the Lord has done. Verse 19, open for me the gates where the righteous enter, and I will go in and thank the Lord. These gates lead to the presence of the Lord, and the godly enter there. I thank you for answering my prayer and giving me the victory. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love 
endures forever. So in the crowd, one person claps, you all have to. So when the crowd declares that one part of the psalm, the bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord, they're also pointing to the rest of the psalm, and they're pointing to those promises that we see in there. That this king entering into Jerusalem, he's bringing in a huge amount of expectation with him. Having shown that he has God-given power and anointing by raising Lazarus from the dead. So when they declare this psalm, also on their minds is the hope that he will set them free. That the Lord will rescue them. That they will not die but live to tell the stories of God's goodness. That they will enter God's presence and thank him for giving them victory. Just what we read in Psalm 118. But what's not on their mind is another part of Psalm 118. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected had now become the cornerstone. They didn't realize that the great king that the crowd were ushering in on Sunday would be the same man the crowd would be rejecting while cheering for Barabbas on Friday. Because the victory would look very different than expected. The passage continues, verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. The obvious thing is that there's nothing ostentatious. There is nothing noteworthy about riding in on a donkey. The people were proclaiming a psalm, but there was another Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled, and that was recorded by the prophet Zechariah about 500 years earlier, 500 years before Jesus. This is what he wrote. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. A grand war horse would have made far much more sense for a king especially when you're expecting that king to be a conquering warrior for you. At least a king would ride in a chariot or a carriage, but certainly not a donkey. Now, it's not quite as ridiculous as a monarch or a president arriving somewhere on a skateboard. It's not quite that ridiculous. Perhaps it's similar to a president or a king or a queen turning up at the palace or the White House in an Uber. It's not expected. It's certainly not grand. It's certainly not noteworthy. It's certainly not prestigious. It's certainly not impressive. But this is a king unlike the kings that you've seen in the past. And he's establishing a kingdom unlike anything they've conceived of before. And this, if you know the story, you'll know, doesn't please everybody. Back to verse 10. Then the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too. For it was because of him that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. Down to verse 19. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. Now because this moment took place around the time of the Jewish Passover festival, it meant that Jerusalem was bustling with people. Some people estimate that around Passover at that time, as many as 2.7 million people would be there for Passover. Normally, the population of Jerusalem was around 600,000. The priests, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they saw this festival as a moment of power. A huge number of people were looking to them for respect and admiration. And now, Jesus has turned that upside down. The priests were intimidated by what was happening. 
The control that they had over people was slipping away, and this drives them to continue the plot to kill Jesus. And they've decided to kill Lazarus too. One consistent thing that can be observed throughout the Gospels is a consistent absurdity that the religious leaders of the day can't see the forest for the trees. They repeatedly watch Jesus perform miracles and do the work of God, and yet they are so lost in their own traditions and so committed to upholding what they viewed as valuable that they reject God's own son. And they work relentlessly to kill him. They scheme and lie and manipulate to put him on the cross. The commentators from some study I've done this week point out that there's an irony that Jesus' display of power over life and death by raising Lazarus from the grave would ultimately lead to his own crucifixion. The crowd welcomed him as king. And what do kings do? How do kings show their power and their strength? Well, they bring peace and justice to their people. Kings are served and they're honored. Kings have feasts and banquets. Kings give great speeches. Kings hold court and pass judgments. Kings have grand coronation ceremonies. Kings are victorious in battle. And it was a Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And the following Sunday, the first Easter Sunday, Jesus would rise from the grave, leaving an empty tomb. But the week that Jesus spends in Jerusalem, we see him acting as a king, but not in the way people expected. Great kings, they bring peace and justice to their people. Jesus cleanses the temple and gives stern warnings to the Pharisees. The next thing we see in the life of Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem is that he goes to the temple and he starts driving out the corruption. He starts correcting the wrongs that have built up over the years. He starts driving out the greed and selfishness and idolatry that have built up over time. In Matthew 23, we see Jesus give, I would say, the sternest words Jesus gives in the recorded scriptures we have to the Pharisees and religious leaders. In Matthew 23, he brings peace and justice. Great kings, they're served and they're honored. And Jesus, he served others. He restored honor and dignity to others. We see this in the washing of the feet, a ritual that no Jewish man would ever do because it was degrading, it was dirty, it was filthy. And we see Jesus serving and honoring others where other kings want to be served and honored themselves. Great kings throw feasts and banquets. Jesus had the Last Supper, typically a feast or a banquet would commemorate or recognize a great event or a great victory. But Jesus taught the disciples to remember the cross as a great victory. Kings give great speeches, inspiring speeches. From Jesus, in John 14, we see the farewell discourse. In John's gospel, later on from where we're reading, we see a long speech given by Jesus teaching the disciples. In that very well-known passage of Scripture, a number of things that have become very famous from Jesus. It's in this portion of Scripture that He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you love my, me, obey my commandments. He promises that the Holy Spirit will come. He says, remain in me and I will remain in you. Love each other the way I have loved you. That the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and of God's righteousness. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you, the Father, sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Great speeches come from kings. From Jesus, we get this speech, which is life-changing. Kings, they hold court 
and they passed judgment. Jesus was arrested. Kings normally administer justice, but here we see Jesus being arrested under false pretenses. There are grand coronation ceremonies that happens when a king takes to the throne. And here, instead of a coronation ceremony, we see Jesus being mocked. Matthew 27, some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. And they placed a reed stick in his hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. For me, the worst detail in this is they kept going until they were too tired to keep going. Then they stopped. That's what we just read. But in this moment with the soldiers mocking Jesus, they put a robe on him, a crown of thorns on him. They gave him a stick to act as a scepter. They mockingly bowed down to him. These are the same things that were done in reverence at a coronation ceremony. That's not what Jesus got. He was mocked and scorned and humiliated and abused. And finally, great kings, they're victorious in battle. And Jesus, he endured the cross. The cross looked like a complete and utter defeat. The whole point of crucifixion is to shame and humiliate people. It's to do it publicly, to send a message, do not mess with Rome. This is what happens when you get on the wrong side of the empire. You won't, do not want to end up like this. To declare this as a victory goes against every concept of victory, common sense, or logic. And Paul writes this in Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Of course it looks foolish. Of course it looks ridiculous. How is it being strung on a cross, nailed up there, helpless, humiliated? How is that a victory? It's a victory when you realize that three days later the tomb was empty. First John, he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. First Peter, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. From Colossians, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. What was achieved on the cross couldn't happen by military force. It took a different kind of strength. The strength to resist using his power so he could achieve what only he could achieve as the son of God, the only perfect sinless person to ever walk the earth. 
Jesus tells Pilate during his shambles of a trial that at a moment's notice, he could summon a thousand angels and be done with this. Jesus had the strength and power to break free from his captors. But Jesus had been to Gethsemane and he prayed, Lord, if there's another way. And in the reality of there being no other way, he willingly goes to the cross. Similar to the week looking at Messiah a few weeks back, the people were expecting Jesus to use brute force as they welcomed him into Jerusalem, as they looked at him as a king, that he would raise an army. But instead, he became the perfect sacrifice on the cross. Despite his innocence, despite his power, despite how unserving humanity is, he did it willingly. The cross is not weakness, it's strength because it's enduring what he didn't have to do. It's enduring. He didn't have to stay on the cross. He could, in a moment's notice, cause a thousand angels to come and set him free. He did not have to. It was not force that kept him there. But to enjoy a healed and whole relationship with humanity, he endured the cross. It's not weakness, it's not defeat. It's strength and victory. The King of Kings, redefines strength and victory. The cross causes us to think about strength and victory differently. We read this verse earlier on, let me repeat it, Matthew 20, 25, but Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you, whoever wants power and influence must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. Among you, it will be different. How we lead, how we view power and authority, how we wield influence, it will be different. It will be to serve and lift people up. It won't be to lord it over people, but to help people rise up in life. It's not demanding our own way, but seeking how to bless others. It's the complete opposite of selfishness and self-centeredness. It's completely redefined from what the world says strength and victory look like. Strength and victory is measured by how it positively affects those around us. Strength is working hard and being a good employee. Strength is telling the truth and facing the consequences. Truth is being patient with our kids. That's the strength rather than giving in to losing our temper. Strength is tending to your responsibilities. Strength is fighting temptation. Strength is forgiving quickly and often. Strength is being a good neighbor. Strength is standing out from the crowd because you're sincere in your faith and you care about your integrity. Strength is helping people recover from their mistakes. Gentlemen, strength is putting your family first. Strength is being faithful to your wife. Strength, gentlemen, is being a role model for your sons by treating your wife in a way that teaches your daughters how they deserve to be treated. Strength is being the same person in every room. This takes strength. Weakness doesn't lend itself to living like this, despite how it seems. Being lazy isn't admirable. Lying is taking the easy way out. Refraining from anger feels impossible in the moment. 
Helping people takes time. Being selfless is costly, but that is true strength. And it's consistently what Jesus taught and demonstrated. Bless those who persecute you. When you're struck, turn the other cheek. If a Roman soldier tells you to carry his gear one mile, go a second mile. Worry about the speck in your own eye. Forgive 70 times seven times. Be kind to those who can never repay you. Among you, it will be different. While I was in school in the UK, as you can imagine, the history classes, we looked a lot at the kings and queens of British history, some of the monarchs over the years. And if you were to ask me to write down and make a list of all the British monarchs that I could name, I don't think it would be a really impressive list if I'm being honest. And if you want to make fun of me, that's fine. But how many presidents can you name? But I Googled it. And over the last 1,200 years, there have been 61 different monarchs. I thought that was quite a low number for 1,200 years, but it averages about 20 years per monarch. So I guess that kind of figures out. I can maybe name a quarter of those, maybe. I don't know how many presidents you can name, but I'm up to about a quarter. Despite learning all about it in school, despite the great victories these kings and queens have achieved, in history, despite the many, many BBC shows made about the kings and queens in our history, despite the Shakespearean plays around the monarchs in England, every earthly victory is temporary. The Los Angeles Rams Super Bowl victory, it's gonna be ancient history in 12 short months. The incredible technology we have today is gonna to be obsolete in 10 years. Just yesterday, my friend posted his Wordle score on Instagram, and this was the caption. Today, I woke up and the victorious life awaited me. But there's a whole new Wordle today, and he hasn't posted anything yet. I'll know if he's watching the message, because I'll get a text later on. The victory of Jesus isn't temporary, it's eternal. It addresses our deepest need to have our relationship with God restored, to have the sin that separated us from Him forgiven and healed. We read these verses from Colossians earlier, but I think it warrants rereading them. Colossians 1, starting in 19. For God in all His fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through Him God reconciled everything to Himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive in Christ, for He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. The King of Kings redefines strength and victory. One of the things I did uh, to get ready for today is I listened to uh, a Bible college lecture I was able to find on YouTube. And uh, it was about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And I watched this, uh, this lecture. It was really insightful and interesting. One of the things that the professor said is that the verse that is key to this account of Lazarus being raised from the dead, this great display of power from Jesus, the key verse is verse 25. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Now, this is a direct question that Jesus was asking to Martha 2,000 years ago. But that question 
is just as poignant today as it was then. I would even say it's just as personal to you and I as it was to Martha when she looked Jesus eye to eye and was asked by him, do you believe in me? That question comes to us today. Do you believe in me? Do you believe that I am the King of Kings? Do you believe that that sacrifice on the cross fixed everything? Do you believe that the deepest problem that you have, the sin that is in your life, my life, and everyone else's life is distancing us from God and has created such a gap, such a divide that we can't fix that ourselves. But because of the victory of the cross, that can all be fixed, all be healed, all be mended. All wrongdoing can be forgiven. Do you believe that? That question comes to us today. And there have been people here who would enthusiastically say, yes, I would say myself, yes, I have put my faith and my trust and my confidence in Jesus and it has completely changed my life. And I wonder what you would answer to that question today. So I want to invite everyone here. We're going to take communion in a moment. But before we do, I would love to give an opportunity for anybody to say yes for the first time to that question. So if you don't mind just closing eyes and bowing your heads, it's just give some discretion to the people around you just to give us a chance to focus on what really matters right now. But if you'd be honest enough and brave enough to say, you know what? I, I don't know if I've ever said yes to Jesus. I don't know if I've ever put my trust and my faith and my confidence in Him. When I hear that question, do you believe in me? Do you believe that I am the King of Kings? It maybe makes you uncomfortable. But if you're at that point, where you're ready to say, yes, I do believe this. I do believe that God loves me so much that He would send His Son that I could never ever clean myself up, fix myself up, get myself figured out, deal with the sin in my life, but God sent His Son to deal with it for me so that I could know life. I could know life. I could have my relationship with God repaired and restored and my eternity can be secure. And if you're at that point where you're ready to say yes, I'd love to pray with you today. I give you my word, we're not gonna embarrass anybody. But if that's you, could you just put your hand in the air? So when I pray in just a moment, I know who we're praying for. Amen, thank you. Anyone else? Wonderful, thank you. Amen. Anybody else here? I give you my word, we won't embarrass you. Thank you. Amen. Anybody else? When we pray together in a moment, all you're doing is let me know that you're gonna be included. Online, you just click that button that says, I raise my hand. Thank you, wonderful, I saw that hand. Anybody else here? Awesome. One last call, if you haven't put your hand up but you know this is the moment for you, please do, just so I know who we're praying for. Anyone else here today? Amen. Amen, come on, Word of Life, let's celebrate. People making the best decision any of us could ever make. Amen. We're going to pray a prayer together, and we do this at every service. The words are going to be on the screen. I want to invite every person here to pray along with me, believing that when you pray a prayer like this, things start to change. God starts to move in our lives, and we pray a prayer like this. So come on, everybody, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, one more time, let's celebrate with people.
Well, for those of you that put your hand up in a few moments, there's gonna be prayer team down here. We're gonna invite you to come and spend some time with them. At the moment, I wanna take a moment and share communion together. Hopefully you got one of these as you came in today. One of the things that I thought was helpful to share today was the idea that the kings, what's typical of a king is to hold feasts and to have a banquet to celebrate something, to recognize something. And Jesus, his feast, if you will, was gathering the disciples together and initiating communion, the last supper that they had together. And he taught, he taught the disciples there that this was to be done in remembrance. The kings of the world, the, the great kings of history, they may have remembered battles, they may have remembered wars, but Jesus is saying, you're gonna get together and you're gonna remember at your feast, you're gonna remember the victory of the cross. Luke 22, verse 19. He took some of the bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Other kings, remembering victories. When you gather, you remember me and the victory I won on the cross. If you wanna go ahead and peel back that first layer of film, the clear layer, we're gonna take the bread together. And we're gonna do this in remembrance of him, of the victory that was won on the cross for you and for me. Let's take the bread together. It goes on in verse 20. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. I shared this with the volunteer team before service today, but I would guess that almost everything we do as a church is upbeat and positive and it's high fives left and right. It's a joyful occasion. Being part of a church is a joyful thing and I wouldn't have it any other way. But it is important that we stop and we remember this is confirmed with my blood. This freedom we have, this joy that we have, this peace that we have, this repaired relationship with God that we get to enjoy and live and life-changing power of God came at an incredible price. And that's what we're remembering today. And we just read, this was poured out as a sacrifice for you. Take this personally. This represents that blood, that sacrifice, that painful sacrifice that Jesus went through on the cross. It was for you. It was for you. And as we remember him and the victory of the cross, let's take the cup together. Amen. Well, let's pray. Lord, as we gather together and we've celebrated the kind of feast that you instituted, Lord, will we remember a great victory a victory that's greater than any military victory, greater than any war, greater than any historical accomplishment, the cross that looked foolish. But for those of us that are being saved, it is the power of God. Lord, we remember you. We remember the cost. And we take it personally that you did it for us. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We honor you. In Jesus' amazing name, amen, amen.